Coming up, a Tory landslide, a calamity for Corbyn and the Lib Dems in disarray. Brexit decided, the opposition in chaos, Scotland's future in doubt. We'll weigh up the election that's put Boris Johnson back in Downing Street with more power than he would have imagined, but some headaches too. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast, which emerges blinking from the madness of the Brexit Christmas election. Apparently, in the final hours of polling on Thursday, activists at Tory headquarters started a sweepstake on the likely results. But none of them came close to predicting the real outcome. A landslide. A majority of 80. The biggest win for the Tories since 1987. Similarly, even Jeremy Corbyn's biggest critics couldn't have imagined that he was leading them to Labour's worst result in terms of seats in more than 80 years. And it's hard to imagine the Liberal Democrats backed Jo Swinson just a few months ago, imagining she would become the first major party leader for more than 70 years to then lose their seat at the next election. Frankly, you could have gone to bed at a minute past 10 on Thursday night and not missed a thing. The exit poll was spot on, an emphatic victory for the Tories, a crushing defeat for both Labour and the Lib Dems. In an instant, any question that Brexit could be stopped evaporated. In less than seven weeks, we will be out of the EU. But that doesn't mean that it's plain sailing from now. Boris Johnson has to negotiate a trade deal and that won't be easy. Plus, he has to deliver on those promises to boost the NHS and other public services to a group of new voters who are demanding something very different from the Tories. And Brexit, together with another big win for the SNP, has triggered renewed questions about the union, questions that might not just be confined to Scotland. But be in no doubt, the next decade belongs to Boris Johnson. With this kind of majority, the Prime Minister has the power to shape post-Brexit Britain in whatever direction he sees fit. So, there is a lot to talk about as we bring in Robert Meakin. Let's begin, Robert, with that extraordinary Conservative victory. Boris Johnson has effectively been gambling ever since he became Prime Minister. You know, he purged the Cabinet within an hour of arriving in office back in July. He pushed the EU into renegotiations. He turned on the DUP and and, and stitched them up in order to get a new deal. He kicked out 21 of his own MPs. He illegally suspended Parliament. And then he called this election another gamble, though actually in retrospect, it doesn't look like one. And it's one that's paid off spectacularly. 365 Tory seats, nearly 14 million votes for the Conservative Party. It turns out that endlessly saying get Brexit done was a good strategy after all. And he was, you know, plenty of people were poking fun at him, you know, repeating that slogan, parrot fashion, you know, let's get Brexit done. But it really did cut through. And it cut through in places the Tories don't normally impact at all. So, in fact, it was, I don't think it's overselling things to say it was a complete masterstroke on their part. There is a danger that we now say that, well, everything Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings have done since July was a stroke of genius, which I think is 
overselling it a bit. But look, they've played a blinder. You, know, you have to acknowledge they leverage voter anger over Brexit, the constant delays and the arguments. They leverage the fury at the deadlock in Parliament. And they leverage this deep sense of unease among people who ought to be natural Labour voters at the idea of a Corbyn-led government. And from that have pulled together this extraordinary coalition. You know, the Conservatives won over traditional supporters in the South, in the Shires, that they've always had, and then huge numbers of working-class voters in the North and the Midlands. And while that's got them their majority and it's got them their election victory, it creates its own headaches as well. A little bit later, we will get on to some of the challenges that Boris Johnson will face as he tries to govern for this new group of Tories. But before that, we have to reflect on the devastating scale of Labour's defeat. Labour lost around a quarter of the voters who backed them in 2017, losing 59 seats in a single night. In terms of the number of seats won, this is the worst performance by Labour since 1935. Now, even Michael Foote won more seats in the 1983 election. That election used to be the model for disastrous Labour electoral performances. And now it's been eclipsed. Now, Robert, it's 2019 that's going to go into the textbooks. In the run-up to the election, there were the, the, the horror stories going round the Labour Party that some of these working-class strongholds in the North, in the Midlands, were vulnerable. I, like many people... you. Know, found it still hard really to fathom. You knew that the Tories were gaining on them, but it was still hard to get your head around the, the idea that places like Bolsover, places in the northeast of England, were going to become conservative seats. Uh, that, that was very hard to comprehend. And I, as I think I said in the last show, that, that would be sort of calamity stakes if that happened. And it did. It was in incredible. And it, it just showed how costly Corbyn's disastrously lily-livered uh, Brexit strategy was. There is no doubt that Labour's, you know, bizarre, complex Brexit strategy, impossible to summarise in a reasonable or concise way on the doorstep, played a massive role in alienating leave-backing Labour voters. But one after another, former Labour MPs and ones that managed to scrape home too, lined up to say... That just as much as Brexit, it was Jeremy Corbyn's name who came up on the doorstep. He personally was alienating them. You know, the Tories had a clear, simple, admittedly repetitive message on Brexit. Labour had this weird scattergun. We talked about this last time. Freebies for everybody. You know, the focus switched every single day. And fundamentally, they were refusing to engage in Brexit, the single biggest issue of the campaign, on the occasions they did engage with it, they had this weird and unconvincing policy. But at the centre of it is someone who, ultimately, many voters just would not accept as Prime Minister. And yet here we are, the numbers are there, the results can't lie, and Jeremy Corbyn still doesn't seem to see it. He talks about the way Brexit was solely to blame, along with the media. It wasn't the media that constructed Labour's hopeless policy on Brexit. It wasn't the media that wrote the Labour manifesto. It wasn't the media that constructed and oversaw Labour's chaotic campaign. And it certainly wasn't the media who made Jeremy Corbyn the face of that campaign. You know, within a few minutes 
of the exit poll coming out, the senior figures in Labour who were scattered around all the TV and radio studios were emailed the line to take. And the line to take was, it was Brexit. It was Brexit that was the cause of this, solely Brexit, nothing else. And they all started parroting it on TV and radio, this narrative. Brexit's the sole reason for this historic defeat. Surely now, of all times, is the moment for Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him to take some personal responsibility for having taken the leadership of the Labour Party and made a terrible, terrible mess of it. There's going to be this ongoing debate inside the Labour ranks now of, of saying that, you know, why, you know, why did we lose? There's an argument that actually it was Brexit that did us. It wasn't about Jeremy Corbyn per se, but it was the party as a whole couldn't get a convincing, clear narrative on Brexit. The rest of our policies, they will say, were very, very successful on the doorstep. They, they played very well to the general public. What didn't play for us was a muddled Brexit stance. That's what's done for us. That's, that's the sort of the pro-Corbynite view presently. It wasn't down to Corbynite policies. On the flip side of that, of course, you'll have plenty of people saying, no, it was a muddled Brexit stance because Jeremy Corbyn was leader, because Jeremy Corbyn's that sort of politician. And also add on that, Jeremy Corbyn was totally unelectable and unconvincing to a huge percentage of natural Labour voters, and you've landed us in it. You know, even after all the idiotic things that we have heard from some of Jeremy Corbyn's most loyal supporters in the past, these twists and turns in the first couple of days after the election these desperate attempts to say that in no way is Mr Corbyn to blame for this catastrophe, have been quite something. I was really struck by something Tom Watson said on Thursday night, that the worst thing you can do if you claim to represent the interests of the working class is to not even try to win. You know, if you are a dyed-in-the-wool socialist, Labour supporter, and you genuinely believe that the Conservatives represent a danger to the people you care about. They will harm their lives. Well, you might want to start by creating a credible alternative to them. The idea that a place like Redcar, you know, where the Tories closed the steelworks less than five years ago, where the Tories refused to intervene, they chose a Tory MP on Thursday night. I can't come up with a more damning indictment of the state of the Labour Party than that. And Labour is in some part to blame for what will follow. If, if, if you believe that the Conservative Party is going to harm the lives of the people in those communities, and the Tories would obviously dispute that, but if you believe that, then you must share part of the responsibility for it. And yet Jeremy Corbyn apparently plans to remain Labour leader for a while. He'll stand down, but not until we've all had a chat about what the future direction of the Labour Party should be, which looks a lot like I will hang around until a sufficiently Corbyn-esque replacement can be manoeuvred into place to tie up the succession. If it was the Tory party, he'd be gone. There'd be blood all over the walls, it'd be over. But it's the Labour Party we're talking about. So it's a normally, traditionally, a rather more long-winded process. So clearly he shot his bolt, it's over. It's just a question of the Labour Party working out its process and how, how, how they go forward. And then is the big inevitable debate of, well, is the party going to stay rooted in this hardish left area? Because, of course, you're going to have the centre-left people, the exiles, screaming, saying, this surely proves it's you know, the worst defeat since Michael Foote, that you are in the wrong, that we aren't going to get over the finish line with this sort of approach. 
I just think at the moment the, the people who have a hold over that party and have the numbers just won't buy it and won't let it happen. The left have their hands around the throat of this party for some time yet and they are not going to give it up. Despite being two general election losses down, they're not going to give it up. And I think you say their narrative will be, I think, that Brexit, they're acknowledging the Brexit stance was muddled, but I don't think that you're going to see them admitting that actually the direction of the Labour Party generally is what, have cost, is what has cost them. The brutal, uncomfortable truth for the left, if you step back for a moment, who are the two Labour politicians who have won general elections to the Labour Party? since Clement Attlee, since World War II. One is Harold Wilson, one is Tony Blair. They're the only people who have won general elections and neither of those men are raging lefties. And that, that, that is an uncomfortable reality for the Labour Party right now, is that the left just doesn't win when it comes to the crunch. Well, I mean, there's plenty of time to learn those lessons, given that this result almost certainly means that Labour will be shut out of power for another 10 years. To those who genuinely believe that some sort of post-Corbyn Corbynism is the answer to this. Just a thought. No political party has a God-given right to exist or to be successful. You have to earn that right and you have to keep earning it. Labour was created to represent the interests of the working class. Now, it also attracted the support of the socially liberal middle class in places like London. But they're all that's left now. The working class votes deserted them in Scotland, much of Wales, and now in the north of England and the Midlands. You've been left with this well-meaning rump of affluent middle class voters in London and a couple of other cities. There is no route back to power for Labour that doesn't involve winning back those former heartlands. So as this debate, this civil war erupts over Labour's future, I think the question for the party's activists is... Do you want to just be a socially liberal middle class protest movement that assuages the guilt you feel about the inequality in society, but never does anything to help the victims of that inequality by actually gaining power? Or do you want to govern? If you want to govern, you need to have a long, hard think about what comes next, because if you choose to carry on down this path, you may actually destroy the Labour Party and find that somebody comes along and just replaces you. Of course, the Liberal Democrats are, if anything, even further along that path towards potential oblivion. Just 11 Lib Dem MPs returned to Westminster this week and Joe Swinson will not be among them. She lost by the tiniest of margins, 149 votes, but it's still quite a fall for a party that just a few weeks ago dreamed of having dozens of MPs and was telling us that Joe Swinson was a possible future Prime Minister. Robert, what a fall. People were getting, and understandably, you know, fe feeling optimistic. You, you thought, in theory, the Tories lurched the right, Labour, obviously, we know, lurched the left. Surely it's screaming out for this rational centrist, pro-Remain party having a very clear stance on the EU issue, which, you know, it, uh, which, you know, some people praise them for. We thought, surely there's room for them to prosper. And yet, once again, it was just the same old story. They got squeezed. They became irrelevant. As, as it got tighter and tighter, they were considered little more than a, a, a 
pressure group, a troublesome protest vote. I do feel for the Liberal Democrats because I've said before, they're always stuck between a rock and a hard place. They're not going to win right now. They're not going to win a general election outright. So what's their best scenario? Is it to prop up another party? Is it to prop up the Conservatives again? Was it to have propped up this imaginary Jeremy Corbyn government? They're not going to get any thanks either. And they get punished for it. They, they are back at the level of being essentially a protest vote. They're little pockets across the country. They've got some very good, hardworking uh, constituency MPs. But beyond that at the moment, they, they are verging on an irrelevance in terms, of the, uh, in terms of the short to medium term political story. It's difficult to see uh, where they go. So I think they are going to have to nurse their wounds a little. But the brutal reality is, as ever, when it came to the crunch, when it came to the heat of the battle, Liberal Democrats went up in flames. There is a huge gap here in terms of who's going to be the actual opposition to the Conservatives. You know, Labour will seemingly have a lame duck leader for weeks, maybe months, unless Jeremy Corbyn bows to the inevitable. And while they're busy fighting a civil war over their future, the Lib Dems have to find a new leader again from a very, very small pool. So it's quite likely that the SNP will end up filling the role of the effective opposition to the Conservatives, because the Nationalists were the other big winners, gaining 13 seats on Thursday night, taking their total to 48 out of Scotland's 59 seats. And immediately afterwards, Nicola Sturgeon was in no doubt that as far as she's concerned, this is a mandate for another referendum on Scottish independence. The the numbers don't work uh, for the SNP in terms of Scottish independence being immediately back on the table, just because the fact that Boris has had such a big win in England. But what a fascinating state of affairs to have Tory England, strong Tory England, against out-and-out nationalist Scotland. The, The SNP... Are, are big players. Nicola Sturgeon has proved herself to be a very savvy, able, ruthless politician. And clearly the SNP are a big part of the story going forward. But in terms of Scottish independence, no, it's just, just Boris Johnson is hardly going to play ball on that. But further down the line, they, they, they look a, you know, a potent force. Yeah, I'm not sure how sustainable this strategy is going to be, to be honest. I know that Boris Johnson's already said no in a phone call with Sturgeon, and I know that he's going to say no again when she formally requests a referendum in the next few days. But the SNP now has 80% of the seats at Westminster. Now, look, maybe he can delay that second referendum. But if the SNP win the next Scottish parliamentary election on a specific promise to seek another independence vote, I just don't see how an English Conservative Prime Minister can continually reject the idea of another referendum without provoking another constitutional crisis. It's also worth saying that we shouldn't ignore the fact that for the first time after this election, there are more nationalist than unionist MPs in Northern Ireland. Now, we know that Boris Johnson's Brexit deal leaves Northern Ireland out on something of a limb with the threat of separate status to avoid a hard border. This could be the start, could be, of a political push towards a vote on reunification on the island of Ireland too at some stage. So yes, Boris Johnson will definitely get Brexit done, but we don't know what the cost will be. So the poor old Queen's going to be dragged back to Westminster before the end of the week for a second state opening of Parliament inside three months. A minor reshuffle will be followed by a bigger one in February once Brexit has happened. Feels odd, by the way, doesn't it, saying that, once Brexit has happened. But yeah, at a stroke, that whole debate over Brexit is over now. 
Now, Boris Johnson always promised he wanted to move beyond Brexit to what he said were the people's priorities. But given how little there was in the Tory manifesto, Robert, it's a blank slate. This prime minister, backed by that big majority, has a great deal of freedom and can basically do whatever he wants. Well, once all the euphoria has died down at Tory HQ, yes, it's a massive win for them. Boris has, has, has played a blinder, you know, in terms of the, the campaign. You just look at the numbers, look at the success. I think once that, once the dust settles, and even after the, the initial celebrations of us getting over the first stage at the end of January, then real, real dog work begins. It's going to be unglamorous. It's going to be messy. Boris could be in all sorts of difficulty again further down the line. For now, of course, people are rightly, if you're on the Tory side, people are going to be very relieved and pleased. He's got the majority to get everything through Parliament. But plenty of battles are ahead. Brussels isn't, isn't suddenly going to lie down now in terms of the negotiations. It gets lost amid all the euphoria that let's get Brexit done as if January the 31st is that's it, it's game over and we're out with all the terms agreed. Not at all. This is just the bare bones being put down before... Frankly, the real, the real crunch negotiations begin. So very difficult times ahead for Boris Johnson. He's likely to get all manner of backlashes. He's going to have some very rough, bad weeks. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm sure the opinion polls will reflect that at times. It's a long, long road ahead for him. As of now, understandably, they're celebrating the fact they've finally got the numbers. They've finally seen off Corbyn. Further down the line, big, big battles ahead. Certainly anyone who thinks that we will suddenly just stop talking about Brexit at the end of January is making a big mistake. But I do suspect that the public, not necessarily the politicians, but the public will just switch off and stop focusing on it while the trade talks get underway. And I have thought for a while that a decent-sized Tory majority would make it quite easy for Boris Johnson in the end to choose to extend the transition period. So if he can't get a trade deal done in 2020, he can't really be held hostage by the hard-right Brexiteers of the ERG quite as easily as he was when he didn't have a majority. Everyone's got very excited about January the 31st. It's, it's an alternative Christmas day. Everyone sort of celebrates and that's the end of it. It's just clearly not the case. As I said, he's going to win that vote. Then, frankly, the real nuts and bolts, real negotiations begin. And that's when the EU will come back. Have they said congratulations, Prime Minister Johnson? That's when the real hard negotiations begin. And you'd be a fool to start predicting how that's going to play out. I think it's going to be very, very, very difficult times. Boris is going to have to compromise. The EU are going to have to compromise. And I think we're going to have all manner of 11th hour high dramas again. So get ready, you know, get your seatbelts on. There's plenty more of this to come. The other big challenge he'll face is the very different expectations of these new Tory voters. You know, Boris Johnson knows that they've only lent him their votes and the only way he can keep them is to deliver on those domestic Promises, the NHS, schools, transport will all have to be better in four or five years' time if he's going to have a chance of holding on to those votes. There has been talk over the weekend that he will go back to being the sort of small-L liberal Boris Johnson that was the mayor of London. Some of his supporters say, look, that's who the real Boris Johnson is, is a small-L liberal-minded conservative. I think the real Boris Johnson is an opportunist is a man who blows with the wind, who does and says whatever he feels is necessary in order to get whatever it is that he wants. Our new prime minister has lied to the Queen while illegally suspending Parliament. He has refused to submit himself to basic scrutiny and he has hidden in a fridge rather than answer reporters' questions. And despite all that, he has won. 
He has won on a massive scale. He has destroyed the parties that oppose him, in England and Wales at least. Boris Johnson always wanted to be world king. Now he is, and we're his subjects. So we better hope he's got a plan. We'll leave it there for now. As ever, there's more on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Party Games Pod. And you can catch up with the archive and subscribe at PartyGamesPodcast.com. For the moment, though, thanks to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.